BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. From the Emerald Isle, Ireland, Dublin Town, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, sitting in room 411 at the Intercontinental Hotel there on Balls Bridge Street in Dublin, where I am attending the Irish Poker Open with my good friend Joe Stapleton. Been here for three days, have played a lot of poker, and will be leaving this trip up a little bit. Not enough to pay for the trip, but to get me relatively close. So that's that's a good thing. Um, have had a, a, a fun time with Joe did a little poker commentary as we watched the Irish Poker Open. Joe is a poker commentator by trade. That is what he does. So I sat in the booth with him and we did a little poker commentary, which was uh, was fun. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. So the poker portion is, is done. It is, uh, for me, it is now 1.18 in the morning on Sunday, or I guess Monday, April 10th, I depart from Ireland back to Roma in about 14 hours. And I thought, well, you know what? I only slept about four hours last night. Uh, I just took two gummy edibles. Why not crack open Wuthering Heights and see if we can't get through the final chapter? We're just about there. It's an exciting time. Always exciting when we finish a book, is it not? I mean, the, the, the feeling of contentment, the satisfaction we derive from finishing a work of classic literature we had no interest in reading. And yet, reading is what we have done. The only question is, can we get through it before the edibles kick in? I don't know. I really don't know. Not legal here in uh, on the Emerald Isle, but Joe managed to smuggle some in somehow. I mean, he's just a, what a nutcase that kid is, you know? Flouting law, flouting tradition. It's going to end up like that Wall Street Journal reporter in Russia if he's not careful. Going to get himself arrested. And I will feign shock and indignation when the cops come busting down the door and find his little sandwich bag full of gummies. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasant trip. Looking forward to getting back to my wife there in Roma. It was Easter today, and Martha attended Mass, not at St. Peter's, which you have to secure tickets to months in advance. She went to a local church, and then she went over to St. Peter's to watch the Pope give Mass, uh, you know, his outdoor, he addresses the public twice a year on Christmas and Easter, and She stood a good distance away, and she showed me uh, some pictures, and basically all you could see was a a white dot, you know, up there, giving his, uh, his, doing his little thing, you know, and then, and then there was a kind of like parade of uh, Swiss Guard as they went, you know, tromping along through the streets of Vatican City with some old-timey instruments and pantyhose, and you know how they dress. Old-timey uh, centurions. I mean, not like Roman centurions. They don't dress like centurions, and I shouldn't have said that, because that, that's a specific. Michael, you take two gummies, and the next thing you know, you're talking about centurions, when you know that's not historically 
accurate. It's not what you meant. You meant they dress like the Swiss guard. That's what they dress like. Because that's what they are. And you don't need to get all fancy in trying to describe them as something other than what they are. They are what they are. They're Swiss guard. And when it gets hot, the Swiss guard wear right guard. So their pits don't stank. So here we are, about to start the final chapter of Wuthering Heights, and we're just going to keep going until we get it done. I imagine there will be a final episode after this one where maybe we talk about Wuthering Heights a little bit, and I give my thoughts, and you think to yourself, Jesus, Michael, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I agree. Because the one thing that I feel like I... I I haven't quite got from this book is really a sense of its thematic importance other than perhaps obsession, you know, the theme of obsession, but I'm not even sure where Emily Bronte comes down on obsession, its nature, its complexities. Well, let's see, maybe it all ties up in a neat little thematic bow here in the final chapter, chapter 34, Wuthering Heights. So the last thing that happened is uh, they're about to get married, you know, and and uh, and Heathcliff has kind of confessed to Nellie Dean about how horrible he is and uh, how he has basically lost his lust for life. I got a lust for life. I got a lust for life. I got a lust for life. Chapter 34. For some days after that evening, Mr. Heathcliff shunned meeting us at meals. Yet he would not consent formally to exclude Herton and Cathy. He had an aversion to yielding so completely to his feelings, choosing rather to absent himself and eating once in 24 hours seems sufficient sustenance for him. Well, that's a trend that Heathcliff got, uh, got ahead of there. There are, there are those people, uh, OMODs, O-M-O-D, it stands for one meal a day, one meal, yeah, O-M-A-D, I guess, one meal a day, I don't know, OMODs, that's what they do. It's supposed to be good for you, I don't know. I don't know if it is or it isn't. doesn't seem like it would be that good for you, but it doesn't seem like it would harm you either. One night, after the family were in bed, I heard him go downstairs and out the front door. I did not hear him re-enter, and in the morning, I found he was still away. We were in April then. Hey, we're in April now! Well, that's fun. We're ending the episode, I mean, the, the book, in the same uh, month that they, they end the book. That's, that's terrific. The weather was sweet and warm, the grass as green as showers and sun could make it, and the two dwarf apple trees near the southern wall in full bloom. Well, who do you suppose those two dwarf apple trees represent? I think I know. After breakfast, Catherine insisted on my bringing a chair and sitting with my work under the fir trees at the end of the house, and she beguiled Hareton who had perfectly recovered from his accident, to dig and arrange her little garden, which was shifted to that corner by the influence of Joseph's complaints. I was comfortably reveling in the spring fragrance around and the beautiful soft blue overhead, when my young lady, who had run down near the gate to procure some primrose roots for a border, returned only half-laden, and informed us that Mr. Heathcliff was coming in. And he spoke to me, she added, with a perplexed countenance. Oh, well, maybe I need to redo that, uh, that reading. Let's see. And he spoke to me. Because, oh, you know, he doesn't speak to her, certainly not in polite tones. Uh, and he spoke to me, she added, with a perplexed countenance. That was a much better reading. What did he say? Asked Harrington. He told me, he told me to be gone as fast as I could. All right, well, I guess he did speak to her as, uh, as he normally does. She answered, but he looked so different from his usual look that I stopped a moment to stare at him. How? He inquired. Why, almost bright and cheerful. No, almost nothing, very much excited and, and wild and glad. 
she replied. Night walking amuses him then, I remarked, affecting a careless manner. In reality, as surprised as she was, and anxious to ascertain the truth of her statement, for to see the master looking glad would not be an everyday spectacle, I framed an excuse to go in. Heathcliff stood at the open door. He was pale, and he trembled, yet certainly he had a strange, joyful glitter in his eyes that altered the aspect of his whole face. "'Will you have some breakfast?' I said. "'You must be hungry, rambling about all night. Ramble.' I wanted to discover where he had been, but I did not like to ask directly. "'No, I'm not hungry,' he answered, averting his head and speaking rather contemptuously, as if he guessed I was trying to divine the occasion of his good humor. I felt perplexed. I didn't know whether it were not a proper opportunity to offer a bit of admonition. Well, Mrs. Dean, you know, you're the only one who can admonish Heathcliff without suffering his slings and arrows. I don't think it want... Oh, it's her saying it. I don't think it right to wander out of doors, I observed. Instead of being in bed, it is not wise at any rate this moist season. I dare say you'll catch a bad cold or a fever. We have something the matter with you now. Nothing but what I can bear, he replied, and with the greatest pleasure, provided you'll leave me alone. Get in, and don't annoy me. I obeyed, and in passing, I noticed he breathed as fast as a cat. Yes, I reflected to myself, we shall have a fit of illness. I cannot conceive what he's been doing. That noon, he sat down to dinner with us and received a heaped-up plate from my hands, as if he intended to make amends for previous fasting. I've neither cold nor fever, Nelly, he remarked, in allusion to my morning speech, and I'm ready to do justice to the food you give me. He took his knife and fork, and was going to commence eating, when the inclination appeared to become suddenly extinct. He laid them on the table, looked eagerly towards the window, then rose and went out. We saw him walking to and fro in the garden while we concluded our meal, and Earnshaw said he'd go and ask why he would not dine. He thought we had grieved him some way. Well, is he coming cried Catherine, when her cousin returned. Nay, he answered, but he's not angry. He seemed rare and pleased indeed. Only I made him impatient by speaking to him twice, and then he bid me be off to you. He wondered how I could want the company of anybody else. I set his plate to keep warm on the fender, and after an hour or two, he re-entered when the room was clear in no degree calmer. The same unnatural, it was unnatural, appearance of joy under his black brows, the same bloodless hue, and his teeth visible now and then, in a kind of smile, his frame shivering, not as one shivers with chill or weakness, but as a tight-stretched cord vibrates, a strong thrilling, rather than trembling, I will ask what is the matter, I thought, or who should? And I exclaimed, Have you heard any good news, Mr. Heathcliff? You look uncommonly animated. Where should good news come from to me? He said. I'm animated with hunger, and seemingly I must not eat. Well, here's what I think is happening. And, and this is, you know, this is, this is one man's theory, and who knows? If you starve yourself which it appears Heathcliff is doing, one can experience a kind of altered state. Can one not? One can experience, perhaps, hallucinations. One Maybe one can, yes, we agree. Uh, and perhaps he is hallucinating the visage of his long-lost love appearing before him. And it is this meeting with Kathy Sr., that has 
animated him thusly he has found a portal by which he may re-engage her and it is the portal of slow emaciation that is my guess about what is happening i don't quite know your dinner is here i returned why won't you get it i don't want it now he muttered hastily i'll wait till supper and nelly once for all let me beg you to warn hareton and the other away from me i wish to be troubled by nobody I wish to have this place to myself. Is there some new reason for this banishment, I inquired? Tell me why you are so queer, Mr. Heathcliff. Where were you last night? I'm not putting the question through idle curiosity, but you are putting the question through very idle curiosity, he interrupted with a laugh. Ha, ha, ha. There, there's there's my belated laugh. Yet I'll answer it. Good. Well, now we'll now we'll know. He, I don't, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a facet of Heathcliff's character, which makes not that much sense, but it is his uh, continual unburdening of himself to Nellie Dean. Uh, obviously, he, we need to have this, or else we wouldn't have the the full story. But it's a little bit, uh, I don't know, his tolerance for her. Is uh, is curious now? Maybe it's necessary. Maybe he just needs somebody in his life that he can speak with, and she is kind of a cipher to him, somebody that he can confide in, knowing that it will most likely go no further. He, she has nobody else, you know. Especially now that uh, what's his face is dead. Um. Okay. So uh, yes, I'll answer it. Last night I was on the threshold of hell. Today I am within sight of my heaven. I have my eyes on it. Hardly three feet to sever me. And now you'd better go. You'll neither see nor hear anything to frighten you, if you refrain from prying. Having swept the hearth and wiped the table, I departed more perplexed than ever. He did not quit the house again that afternoon, and no one intruded on his solitude till, at eight o'clock, I deemed it proper, though unsummoned, to carry a candle and his supper to him. Well, he did say he would eat supper. He did say that, Nellie Dean, so you're, you're well within your rights. He was leaning against the ledge of an open lattice, but not looking out. His face was turned to the interior gloom, The fire had smoldered to ashes. The room was filled with the damp, mild air of the cloudy evening. And so still, that not only the murmur of the beck down Gimmerton was distinguishable, but its ripples and its gurgling over the pebbles or through the large stones which it could not cover. I uttered an ejaculation of discontent at seeing the dismal grate and commenced shutting the casements one after another till I came to his. Must I close this, I asked, in order to rouse him, for he would not stir. The light flashed on his features as I spoke. Oh, Mr. Lockwood, I cannot express what a terrible start I got by the momentary view. Those deep black eyes, that smile in ghostly paleness, it appeared to me not Mr. Heathcliff, but a goblin. And in my terror, I let the candle bend towards the wall, and it left me in darkness. Yes, close it, he replied in his familiar voice. There, that is pure awkwardness. Why did you hold the candle horizontally? Be quick, and bring another. I hurried out in a foolish state of dread and said to Joseph, The master wishes you to take him a light and rekindle the fire, for I dare not go in myself again just then. Joseph rattled some fire into the shovel and went, but he brought it back immediately with the supper tray in his other hand, explaining that Mr. Heathcliff was going to bed, and he wanted nothing to eat till morning. 
Mr. Heathcliff is knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Is he not? He is willing himself into the great beyond, just as you and I are willing ourselves into the great beyond, beyond this book. Let's take a quick little break here, back in a moment, to finish up Wuthering Heights here on Obscure. Unobscure Heathcliff communing with the dead and welcoming himself into their presence, I suspect, trying to anyway, refusing all food, just as Kathy Sr. had done low those many years ago. You recall when she was catatonic in her husband's home, wishing for Heathcliff, wishing for anything other than what she had. And here we are again repeating the scene, but this time in a kind of holy and joyful light, though the light may be demonic. I may have misconstrued the nature of it because both, uh, you know, uh, uh, Nellie says he looks like a goblin or a demon, and, and I don't think Joseph is too happy either. We heard him mount the stairs directly. He did not proceed to his ordinary chamber, but turned into that with the paneled bed. Its window, as I mentioned before, is wide enough for anybody anybody to get through, and it struck me that he plotted another midnight excursion, which he had rather we had no suspicion of. Is he a ghoul or a vampire, I mused? I had read of such hideous incarnate demons— and then I set myself to reflect how I had tended him in infancy, and watched him grow to youth, and followed him almost through his whole course, and what absurd nonsense it was to yield to that sense of horror. Well, I mean, he may not be a ghoul or a vampire in the literal sense, but, you know, in the metaphoric sense, I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue he's anything but. You forget that Nellie has known him all his life. I mean, maybe, you know, we question, I questioned perhaps stupidly the nature of their relationship, but maybe it's no more complicated than she is a kind of surrogate mother to him without the baggage of either being his biological nor adopted mother, but just a kind of nanny who has always been there with him. But where did he come from, that dark little thing? Harbored by a good man to his bane, muttered suspicion as I dozed into unconsciousness, and I began, half dreaming, to weary myself with imaging some fit parentage for him, and repeating my waking meditations, I tracked his existence over again with grim variations, at last picturing his death and funeral, of which all I can remember is, being exceedingly vexed at having the task of dictating an inscription for his monument, and consulting the sexton about it. And as he had no surname, and we could not tell his age, we were obliged to content ourselves with the single word, Heathcliff. That came true we were. If you enter the kirkyard, you'll read on his headstone only that, and the date of his death." Dawn restored me to common sense. I rose and went into the garden as soon as I could see to ascertain if there were any footmarks under his window. There were none. He has stayed at home, I thought, and he'll be all right today. I doubt it. I very much doubted Mrs. Dean. He may stay home, but he's not going to be all right. Never has been, never will be. Maybe... In, in death, I think, we will find that he is as close to all right as we have ever known him to be. I prepared breakfast for the household, as was my usual custom, but told Hareton and Catherine to get theirs ere the master came down, for he lay late. They preferred taking it out of doors, under the trees, and I set a little table to accommodate them. 
On my re-entrance, I found Mr. Heathcliff below. He and Joseph were conversing about some farming business. He, gla- he gave clear, minute directions concerning the matter discussed, but he spoke rapidly and turned his head continually aside and had the same excited expression, even more exaggerated. Yeah, he's going nutso. Well, I'll, you know, maybe we'll have some thoughts about that at the end or maybe in the next episode because I, I, I have maybe some thoughts about this that sort of dovetail with the last year of my life or so. When Joseph quitted the room, he took his seat in the place he generally chose and I put a basin of coffee before him. He drew it nearer and then rested his arms on the table and looked at the opposite wall, as I supposed, surveying one particular portion, up and down, with glittering, restless eyes, and with such eager interest that he stopped breathing during half a minute together. Come now, I exclaimed, pushing some bread against his hand. Eat and drink that while it is hot. It has been waiting near an hour. He didn't notice me, and yet he smiled. I'd rather have seen him gnash his teeth than smile so. Mr. Heathcliff, master, I cried. Don't, for God's sake, stare as if you saw an unearthly vision. Don't, for God's sake, shout so loud. He replied, turn round and tell me. Are we by ourselves? Of course was my answer. Of course we are. Still, I involuntarily obeyed him, as if I were not quite sure. With a sweep of his hand, he cleared a vacant space in front among the breakfast things and leant forward to gaze more at his ease. Now I perceived he was not looking at the wall, for when I regarded him alone, it seemed exactly that he gazed at something within two yards' distance, and whatever it was, it communicated apparently both pleasure and pain in exquisite extremes, At least the anguished yet raptured expression of his countenance suggested that idea. The fancied object was not fixed either. His eyes pursued it with unwearied vigilance, and even in speaking to me were never weaned away. I vainly reminded him of his protracted abstinence from food, if he stirred to touch anything in compliance with my entreaties, if he stretched his hand out to get a piece of bread, his fingers clenched before they reached it and remained on the table forgetful of their aim. I sat, a model of patience, trying to attract his absorbed attention from its engrossing speculation till he grew irritable and got up, asking why I would not allow him to have his own time in taking his meals and saying that, on the next occasion I needn't wait, I might set the things down and go. Having uttered these words, he left the house, slowly sauntered down the garden path, and disappeared through the gate. Oh, where do you think he's going? Probably out to the moor, he's going to ramble. No doubt he's going to ramble some more, you know, and take his morning constitutional with his love, the specter, of Kathy Sr., though he himself becoming more spectral by the moment, is he not? This ghoul, this vampire, he is hovering between this world and the next and trying to hurry himself down that path into the netherworld. And uh, what better way to hurry oneself than by rambling? You know, that's, uh, frankly, you know, the, the, They've been practicing rambling this whole book. To what end? So you ramble on through the the thin veil between life and death, between this world and the next. The different dimensions just waiting for us to ramble on in. The hours crept anxiously by. Another evening came. I did not retire to rest till late, and when I did, I could not sleep. He returned after midnight, and instead of going to bed, shut himself into the room beneath. I listened and tossed about, and finally dressed and descended. It was too irksome to lie up there, harassing my brain with a hundred idle misgivings. 
I distinguished Mr. Heathcliff's step, restlessly measuring the floor, and he frequently broke the silence by a deep inspiration resembling a groan. He muttered detached words. Also, the only one I could catch was the name of Catherine, coupled with some wild term of endearment or suffering, and spoken as one would speak to a person present, low and earnest, and wrung from the depth of his soul. I had not courage to walk straight into the apartment, but I desired to divert him from his reverie, and therefore fell foul of the kitchen fire, stirred it, and began to scrape the cinders. It drew him forth sooner than I expected. He opened the door immediately and said, Nelly, come here. Is it morning? Come in with your light. It is striking four, I answered. You want a candle to take upstairs. You might have lit one at this fire. No, I don't wish to go upstairs, he said. Come in and kindle me a fire and do anything there is to do about the room. I must blow the coals red first before I can carry any, I replied, getting a chair in the bellows. I mean, how old is Nellie Dean? She raised Heathcliff. He's got to be in his 40s, mid-40s, 50s. She's got to be uh, at least 15 years older than that. And still, he's like, go, go get the coals and bring them here, you serving wench. I mean, it would never occur to him to do this task himself because he's a dickhead. He roamed to and fro, meantime, in a state approaching distraction, his heavy sighs succeeding each other so thick as to leave no space for common breathing between. When day breaks, I'll send for Green, he said. I wish to make some legal inquiries of him while I can bestow a thought on those matters, and while I can act calmly. I have not written my will yet and how to leave my property I cannot determine. I wish I could annihilate it from the face of the earth. I would not talk so, Mr. Heathcliff, I interposed. Let your will be a while. You'll be spared to repent of your many injustices yet. <laughs> Good for you, Nelly. I never expected that your nerves would be so disordered. They are at present marvelously so, however, and almost entirely through your own fault. The way you have passed these three last days might knock up a titan. Do take some food and some repose. You need only look at yourself in a glass to see how you require both. Your cheeks are hollow and your eyes bloodshot, like a person starving with hunger and going blind with loss of sleep. It is not my fault that I cannot eat or rest, he replied. I assure you, it is through no settled designs. I'll do both as soon as I possibly can, but you might as well bid a man struggling in the water rest within arm's length of the shore. I must reach it first, and then I'll rest. Well, never mind, Mr. Green. As to repenting of my injustices, I've done no injustice, and I repent of nothing. I'm too happy, and yet I'm not happy enough. My soul's bliss kills my body but does not satisfy itself. Interesting. Let's go back and reread that sentence, shall we not? My soul's bliss kills my body. Yes, that fire which is raging inside him, that happy fire, mimicking those, uh, uh, those, uh, those coals that Mrs. Nellie Dean has blown red hot. They have found themselves in his gut, and are illuminating him from within, but in doing so, they are also immolating him. But does not satisfy itself. The soul does not satisfy itself. Why not, I wonder? Happy, master, I cried. Strange happiness. If you would hear me without being angry, I might offer some advice that would make you happier. What is that, he asked. Give it. You are aware, Mr. Heathcliff, I said, that from the time you were thirteen years old, you have lived a selfish, unchristian life, and probably hardly had a Bible in your hands during all that period. You must have forgotten the contents of the book, 
and you may not have space to search it now. Could it be hurtful to send for someone, some minister of any denomination, it does not matter which, to explain it and show you how very far you have erred from its precepts and how unfit you will be for its heaven unless a change takes place before you die? I'm rather obliged than angry, Nelly, he said, for you remind me of the manner that I desire to be buried in. It is to be carried to the churchyard in the evening. You and Hareton may, if you please, accompany me, and mine particularly, to notice that the sexton obeys my directions concerning the two coffins. No minister need come, nor need anything be said over me. I tell you, I have nearly attained my heaven, and that of others is altogether unvalued and uncoveted by me. I like that. I like that very much. I've attained my heaven. If there's another one out there, I'm not interested. No thanks. Uncoveted and unvalued by me. My heaven is two yards in front of my face. You can't see it, but I can. I've been watching it these three days. Hence. And supposing you persevered in your obstinate fast and died by that means, and they refused to bury you in the precincts of the kirk, I said, shocked at his godless indifference. How would you like it? They won't do that, he replied. And if they did, you must have me removed secretly. And if you neglect it, you shall prove practically that the dead are not annihilated. And if you neglect it, you shall prove practically that the dead are not annihilated. Why? Because his ghostly form will come and haunt? Is that why? As soon as he heard the other members of the family stirring, he retired to his den, and I breathed freer. But in the afternoon, while Joseph and Hareton were at their work, he came into the kitchen again, and with a wild look bid me come and sit in the house. He wanted somebody with him. I declined, telling him plainly that this strange talk and manner frightened me, and I had neither the nerve nor the will to be his companion alone. I believe you think me a fiend, he said, with his dismal laugh. <laughs> Something too horrible to live under a decent roof. Then turning to Catherine, who was there, and who drew behind me at his approach, he added, half sneeringly, Will you come, Chuck? <laughs> Chuck, he says. I don't know what that insult is, but I know it's foul. Chuck. <laughs> I'll not hurt you. No. To you I've made myself worse than the devil. Well, there is one who won't shrink from my company. My God, she's relentless. Oh, damn it, it's unutterably too much for flesh and blood to bear even mine. He solicited the society of no one. At dusk he went into his chamber. Through the whole night and far into the morning, we heard him groaning and murmuring to himself. Hareton was anxious to enter, but I bid him fetch Mr. Kenneth, and he should go in and see him. When he came, and I requested admittance, and tried to open the door, I found it locked. And Heathcliff bid us be damned. He was better and would be left alone. So the doctor went away. The following evening was very wet. Indeed, it poured down till day dawn, and as I took my morning walk round the house, I observed the master's window swinging open and the rain driving straight in. He cannot be in bed, I thought. Those showers would drench him through. He must either be up or out. But I'll make no more ado. I'll go boldly and look. Having succeeded in obtaining entrance with another key, I ran to unclose the panels, for the chamber was vacant. Quickly pushing them aside, I peeped in. Mr. Heathcliff was there, laid on his back. His eyes met mine so keen and fierce, I started, and then he seemed to smile. I could not think him dead, but his face and throat were washed with rain, the bedclothes dripped, and he was perfectly still. 
The lattice, flapping to and fro, had grazed one hand that rested on the sill. No blood trickled from the broken skin, and when I put my fingers to it, I could doubt no more. He was dead and stark. I hasped the window. I combed his black long hair from his forehead. I tried to close his eyes, to extinguish, if possible, that frightful, lifelike gaze of exultation before anyone else beheld it. They would not shut. They seemed to sneer at my attempts, and his parted lips and sharp white teeth sneered too. Taken with another fit of cowardice, I cried out for Joseph. Joseph shuffled up and made a noise, but resolutely refused to meddle with him. The devils carried off his soul, he cried, and he will have his carcass into the bargain for all, all care. Ech, what a wicked and he looks grinning in death. And the old sinner grinned in mockery. I thought he intended to cut a caper round the bed, but suddenly composing himself, he fell on his knees and raised his hands, and returned thanks that the lawful master and the ancient stock were restored to their rights. I felt stunned by the awful event, and my memory unavoidably recurred to former times with a sort of oppressive sadness. But poor Hareton, the most wronged, was the only one that really suffered much. He sat by the corpse all night, weeping in bitter earnest. He pressed its hand and kissed the sarcastic, savage face that everyone else shrank from contemplating, and bemoaned him with that strong grief which springs naturally from a generous heart, though it be tough as tempered steel. Kenneth was perplexed to pronounce of what disorder the master died. I concealed the fact of his having swallowed nothing for four days, fearing it might lead to trouble, and then, I am persuaded, he did not abstain on purpose. It was the consequence of his strange illness, not the cause. We buried him, to the scandal of the whole neighborhood, as he had wished. Earnshaw and I, the sexton, and six men to carry the coffin, comprehended the whole attendance. The six men departed when they had let it down into the grave. We stayed to see it covered. Hareton, with a steaming face, dug green sods and laid them over the brown mold himself. At present, it is as smooth and verdant as its companion mounds, and I hope its tenant sleeps as soundly. But the country folks, if you ask them, would swear on the Bible that he walks. There are those who speak to having met him near the church and on the moor and even within this house. Idle tales, you'll say, and so say I. Yet that old man by the kitchen fire affirms he has seen two on him looking out of his chamber window on every rainy night since his death. And an odd thing happened to me about a month ago. I was going to the Grange one evening, a dark evening, threatening thunder. And just at the turn of the heights, I encountered a little boy with a sheep and two lambs before him. He was crying terribly, and I suppose the lambs were skittish and would not be guided. What is the matter, my little man? I asked. There's Heathcliff and a woman yonder unto Nabby blubbered. An adornit possum. We saw Heathcliff and a woman, you know, just sitting there. Do you believe it? Dear listener, do you believe it? I do. Began as a ghost story and it's ending as a ghost story. Very good, I like that. I saw nothing, but neither the sheep nor he would go on, so I bid him take the road lower down. He probably raised the phantoms from thinking as he traversed the moors alone on the nonsense he had heard his parents and companions repeat. Yet still, I don't like being out in the dark now, and I don't like being left by myself in this grim house. I cannot help it. I shall be glad when they leave it and shift to the Grange. 
They're going to the Grange, then, I said. Yes, answered Mrs. Dean, as soon as they are married. And that will be on New Year's Day. And who will live here then? Why, Joseph will take care of the house, and perhaps a lad to keep him company. They will live in the kitchen, and the rest will be shut up. For the use of such ghosts as choose to inhabit it, I observed. No, Mr. Lockwood, said Nellie, shaking her head. I believe the dead are at peace, but it is not right to speak of them with levity. At that moment, the garden gate swung to. The ramblers, the ramblers, were returning. They are afraid of nothing, I grumbled, watching their approach through the window. Together they would brave Satan and all his legions. As they stepped onto the doorstones and halted to take a last look at the moon, or more correctly, at each other by her light, I felt irresistibly impelled to escape them again, and pressing a remembrance into the hand of Mrs. Dean and disregarding her expostulations at my rudeness, I vanished through the kitchen as they opened the house door, and so should have confirmed Joseph in his opinion of his fellow servant's gay indiscretions, had he not fortunately recognized me for a respectable character by the sweet ring of a sovereign at his feet. I, he chucked him a coin. At, here in Ireland, you know, you don't chuck people coins so much. They, they don't need it. Same in Italy. I like that. But remember, this is an American book. My walk home was lengthened by a diversion in the direction of the kirk, when beneath its walls I perceived decay had made progress even in seven months. Many a window showed black gaps deprived of glass, and slates jutted off here and there, beyond the right line of the roof, to be gradually worked off in coming autumn storms. I sought, and soon discovered, the three headstones on the slope next to the moor, the middle one grey and half-buried in heath, Edgar Linton's only harmonized by the turf and moss creeping up its foot, Heathcliff's still bare. I lingered round them under that benign sky, watched the moths fluttering among the heath and harebells, listened to the soft wind breathing through the grass, and wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth. The end. Well, and there you have it. How could anyone imagine unquiet slumbers for the sleepers in that quiet earth? Mrs. Dean, you may not know what you're talking about when you deny the reality of those phantasms lingering and rambling along the moors. So there you have it, everybody. Wuthering Heights has come to its conclusion on a somewhat bittersweet note. Um, mostly sweet, I would say. Everybody has kind of gotten what they wanted, yes? Kathy Jr. and Herden Earnshaw have found love at long last. Mrs. Dean has seen her charges grow into respectable adults. And Heathcliff has gotten what he wanted, which was release from this earth and back into the arms of his beloved, where they will quibble and bicker for all eternity. It is a curious book, is it not? It is unlike, I think, anything that I have read before in terms of its, um, not quite its structure, but its its characters and its and the, the arc of it and, and um, the resolution of it. It is a queer book. I like it. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not going to turn my back on this great American novel. Emily Bronte has really showed us something here. Much more than Mary Shelley. 
Not that it's a competition. And this book came, what, 100 years later? Or no, it came roughly the same. 50 years later, 60, I don't know. Maybe the same time? I don't know. Uh, but it's very late. I'm very tired. The gummies have not kicked in. So don't, you know, don't be like, oh, he, Michael, he's fucking high. He doesn't know what he's talking about. No, I'm just, I haven't slept. I slept four hours last night. Because Joe fucking Stapleton snores. We're sharing a hotel room. And my God, the dude snores. But yeah, I like it. You know, look, if I'm going to rank the books, and you know I'm going to rank the books, uh, it goes in descending order, or let's say ascending order, Frankenstein, Wuthering Heights, and then Jude the Obscure. That's, that's my current ranking for the top three books read on the Obscure podcast. Now, next, we'll read another one. I don't know. I don't know what yet. I don't know when yet. Um, you know, I always need a little bit of a break after we finish these books. I'll, I'll try to post some stuff about the trip and, and what have you, and, you know, I'll keep you up to date on my doings and comings and goings. And yeah, there we go. I do think I'll try to do another kind of wrap up episode to discuss, particularly this ending, because, um, we're already almost an hour in and I'm exhausted. So why don't we just leave it there? We have finished Wuthering Heights. Let us all marinate with that for a little while. And then, um, because it is Easter, we will return on another resurrected episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you Adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lynn. Our theme song is by Craig Wedren. We rely on you, the listeners, for support. So please, go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading uh, and it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black, and I will see you next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader.